designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. I like that about architecture. I like being able to drive through the neighborhood and say that community center that we built kept 15 kids on the right path. Mm-hmm. You know, that family life center at the church provided a, a safe space for the community. Just all these stories that come yeah. with our practice. Yeah. It's not just designing buildings, it's designing spaces, it's influencing lives. It's, it's the connectivity of all of it. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here. So let's get into it. Welcome back. I am in full swing on conference preparation this fall. I'll be speaking at the National Organization of Minority Architects Conference in Nashville in late October and Greenville in San Francisco in early November. Come find me and say hi if you'll be there. And I am blown away that I am approaching 30 episodes on this podcast. So far, it's been a labor of love that I try to make time to do every month. And I am looking to grow a team that can help me with social media, show notes, and other podcast-related things. So if you're interested, please email me at tangibleremnants at gmail.com. And that's tangibleremnants, all one word. Now, for the most part, many of the early episodes have focused on women practitioners and practitioners of color and their journey into the profession. The current batch of future episodes that I'm working on will be a bit more project-specific and cover a range of projects that are happening in many states around the country. So if there are any projects that you'd like me to cover, please email me, again, at tangibleremnants at gmail.com to let me know, and we'll chat to see if it could be a good fit for the show. So as you may know, one of the reasons that I do this podcast is to extend vantage points into the profession and to help BIPOC professionals and students feel less alone. I didn't realize it when I started, but part of doing this podcast was to create something that I wish I'd had when I was a student at UVA, someone to validate my experiences, doubts, frustrations, and let me know they were normal, unfortunately, and inspire me to keep going. 
I am grateful that I had a great support system while studying architecture, but I also want to let BIPOC students who may not have a network know that they're not alone. I hope that this episode in particular is affirming for any students of color who are studying architecture at predominantly white institutions and may be having a hard time. I'm excited to share this episode not only because I got to reconnect with an old friend, but also because we talk very candidly about some of the racism we experienced at UVA and in our professional journeys, as well as how we coped with it. So in this episode, I get to have a conversation with Marcus Moore, who is a principal architect at Moore Architecture, which is based in Charlotte, North Carolina. One of the things that I love about Marcus's story is that he has such deep generational connection to the University of Virginia, and you'll have to continue listening to this episode or read the show notes to learn more about his connection to the university. But for now, you should know that he has a Bachelor's of Science in Architecture with a minor in Urban Planning from the University of Virginia, and also holds a Bachelor's of Architecture from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, UNCC. So yes. This is another episode with someone I went to UVA with, but what can I say? I was fortunate enough to go through the UVA program with a number of amazing people. Also, if you are not familiar with UVA lingo, a first year at UVA is the same as a freshman at other universities. As UVA students, we're taught to identify as first, second, third, and fourth years. It's an old UVA tradition that stems from Thomas Jefferson's philosophy that learning never stops. And I know, Many people find this terminology as unnecessary or pretentious, but it's something that UVA students and alum hold dear, and it's an easy way for us to identify other wahoos. I also wanted to give you a heads up that this conversation contains some adult language, so if you have little ones around, you may want to grab some headphones. This week's building spotlight is actually not a building, but it is a physical structure and a marker on the landscape that you can inhabit, and it's UVA's Memorial to the Enslaved which was completed in the spring of 2020 and honors the lives, labor, and resistance of the 4,000 to 5,000 enslaved people who lived and worked at UVA at some point in time between 1817 and 1865. And the memorial includes about 4,000 memory marks in their honor. I had a chance to visit the memorial in 2021 with a few other alum, and it was a powerful experience to see the prominent placement on the grounds and acknowledgement of slavery at the university. Overhearing some of the conversations that were happening in mixed company between visitors of all races was interesting and definitely sparked some additional conversations. So if you haven't already, be sure to follow Tangible Remnants on Instagram at Tangible Remnants, and I'll post some photos of the memorial so you can see what it looks like if you haven't already. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Marcus Moore. So I already know a little bit of your architecture journey since <laughs> I had the, the pleasure of being at UVA with you and your brother at the same time. But I'd love for you to talk about your architecture journey and how you got to the profession. Yes. So my path to the profession is kind of unique. We all stumble across architecture. But we are born into the built environment. So the moment you enter the world you are exposed to architecture and the power of design, be it a nursery in the hospital, your, your nursery in your home, your crib. Somebody had to design that. So we all kind of are born into the built environment. However, I was born into the profession of architecture. My father's an architect. My brother's an architect. My grandfather was a brick mason, primarily because people who look like us weren't allowed to go to architectural school and become a professional 
they couldn't professionally practice architecture. So my dad's father went to masonry school in North Carolina A&T, which is a historically black college university in Greensboro. So my path started with my grandfather. And then as my father was growing up, he wanted to become a mason because the term architect didn't even exist in his lexicon. Mm-hmm. Coming from a, a poor upbringing of people of color, like that just wasn't an opportunity for him. So he kind of stumbled across UVA. He was on a band trip and everybody was talking about what they're going to do when they graduate high school. And the smartest kid on the bus said, I'm going to go to UVA. So my dad was like, what's this UVA? Okay, I'll go to UVA too. And then <laughs> he he fell into architecture because he's always loved working with his hands and he understood the built environment. However, he didn't even know there was an opportunity for somebody like him to become an architect. So that was his story. And I, I kind of gravitated towards a profession I would say towards my senior year in high school, I always loved problem solving. I always loved breaking things apart and seeing how they could fix them and put it back together. And at that, as a kid, I didn't know breaking toys and putting them back together was basically what architects do with problem solve. That's the basis of who we are as a profession. Clients or owners have a problem and they come to us to fix it. So when I was a kid, I, I would break toys and fix them, not knowing that that was who I was as a person, was the, the fixer almost. So as a kid, having a dad who's an architect, he would bring us on job site visits. We would get under the crawl spaces, take pictures of buildings, uh, take measurements for him. And this whole time, I didn't know he was crafting this world of opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the part that really attracted me to what my dad does is not just he's drawing on a piece of paper. But he was taking somebody's problem, somebody's idea, somebody's uh, issue, and he would make it into reality. So when I got to see the process of presenting a project in front of a church, and you know they had a tight budget, and they wanted this grand addition, and they couldn't afford it, and my dad came up with a way to transform it, and he came up with a plan of action, and that whole process of getting to that ribbon cutting ceremony and everybody's just thanking him for making this thing happen, making this idea into fruition. That's what really attracted me to architecture was the one-on-one direct relationships that we can have with those people. So when I was a kid, I wanted to become a dentist uh, because they made a lot of money. And growing up, my dad was a single parent, had his own company, raising three kids. So we were poor. We got free lunch um, at school, but the kids in our neighborhood never called us poor. They called us rich because we were the only kids that had a father. Everybody oh. else was had single moms. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we didn't have a mom, but we had a dad. And, and, and where we come from, that was valuable. That was rich. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to be an architect because <laughs> starting a dad architect poor. <laughs> you know, uh, he, we come from very humble beginnings. And part of that exposure though, to the profession we got to experience the job recessions, the economy. When it was booming, we were great. We were eating steak and potatoes when it was great. But when the economy was slipping to a recession, I remember one week, my dad came home and he had this bag. Mm-hmm. And it was a bag of corn that he had picked from somebody's farm. And Dang. Nikita, I tell you, there are so many ways you can eat corn. That, so many ways. <laughs> you know, so many ways. <laughs> and I grew tired of eating corn for a week. Yeah. Remind me where you guys grew up. We grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. Okay. It's about an hour south of Charlottesville. 
So that's how I, I stumbled into the profession. Now, when I got to UVA, mm -hmm. I thought architecture school was going to be a breeze. I thought here I have, I'm second generation architect. I know what I'm talking about, right? Right. No, Peter Wallman's class cracked my head wide open. <laughs> and um, I actually struggled as an architecture student, the design side. Right. You know, I still was an AD student, of course, with your mentoring, uh, you helped <laughs> guide me through the A school. So I thank you so much, Nikita. I wouldn't be here without you. You're well, so I welcome. Know if you were my direct mentor. But I wasn't. I think I was. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And it worked out. Um, yeah. And UVA had a really great peer advisor program for all the Black students mm -hmm. because at least Dean Terry and the Office of African American Affairs knew that it was difficult being a student of color at UVA at that time. Mm -hmm. So I was so grateful for that program. My peer advisor was Carlton Miller. And so then the next year I was like, yeah, I'll be a peer advisor. And so I got your brother, <laughs> but you're right. I was like, wait a minute you're a twin? Wait, your dad was an architect? Like, it was, it was fascinating. <laughs> Actually, my peer advisor, and then my brother and I also became peer advisors as well. Because that, that program is amazing because it's it's a culture shock. Yeah. When you're 17, 18 years old, going into a predominantly white university like Virginia. Yeah. And when uh, I, and I'm, it's tough. I'm from Northern Virginia, but I went to a very diverse high school, so much so to the point where I was very naive leaving high school, <laughs> thinking that racism was done. That was something from the what? 60s and 70s. <laughs> when I got to UVA and it was like, oh, so being treated differently because you're Black is still a thing. That was wild. That was culture shock for me and blew my mind because I was like, what do you mean? I, <laughs> it was just, it was an interesting experience being too Black for the white folks and too white for the Black folks and all that. Like you're just yeah. culture shock. You're for sure. no exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So oh, continue. Wow. Back to Lessons of the Lawn with Peter Waldman. <laughs> yeah, as a first year architecture student with Peter Waldman, I think he had this assignment. It was like the lunatic, he called it. And it was like the dots and lines. And I said, this is not architecture, you know. Um, so I struggled first year. Second year, I struggled even more with my design studio class because that was a first year studio mm -hmm. where we're trying to put together these ideas and make them tangible. And I was like, I struggled with that. I knew how to make it code compliant. I knew how to measure the building. I knew that's not architecture. Right. But the, the whys and the, to think differently is what, I, what my previous experience in the profession kind of hindered me to. My academic advisor, Craig Barton, he sat down with me. And he said, I will fill you out of this architecture program until you figure this out. You have until Friday to give me something that's decent. He said, what you're doing, you're going to be a great architect. He was like, you, you already know that. But architecture school is not about making you a great architect. It's about making you a great thinker. Mm -hmm. And I was like, are we studying architecture to be architects? And he was right. like, no, it, like the practice of architecture is not the study of architecture. So I want you to let go of everything you know and just think about what you want it to be. Not what it has to be, but what you want it to be. And he didn't fail me, <laughs> you know, because I got my stuff together. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, I think that was the only all-nighter I pulled at UVA was that week. Wait, um, the only one? Yeah, I only did one all-nighter. Yeah. That is props mm -hmm. to you. All-nighters were a way of life, unfortunately. And that's a distinct <laughs> badge of honor that so many architecture students try and claim. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, so, um, I, I never worked overtime. I've never worked for over 40 hours a week in my profession. 
get it. Yes. So like all nighters and stuff, I just get in, get my work done and get out. Mm -hmm. Because the thing about a Friday is it's going to be a Monday. And every Monday, it's going to be a Friday. (laughs) We got 52 weeks in a year. It's going to happen again, guys. So let's just, let's worry about it on Monday. It'll still be there when we get back. And you got new deadlines. Mm -hmm. You got new budgets. Those are always moving targets. So Right. um, Right. But so my UVA experience, what really helped me was a peer advisor program, but then also NOMAS, because in, in architecture school, we're isolated from the university, but once we stepped out of the A school, we got challenged as Black students. You right. didn't belong right. here. You only got in here because you're Black. They didn't know our SAT scores. Mm-hmm. They didn't know our class ring. They don't know anything about us other than you're Black. And I felt that I didn't belong at UVA here was, I was a second generation UVA student. I, I used to sneak into football and basketball games when I was five years old. Um, <laughs> right. Like we used to sneak through the gate. Uh, mm-hmm. This is before they had all the technology. Right. Um, not only that. So my grandmother was a maid for the university for years. And you're not going to believe this though. So the first time I met my grandfather was as a first year. Same way. Yeah. My mom's dad was a cook at UVA. Huh. So I'm at O'Hill and this old guy comes from behind the cook line and he was like, let me talk to you for a second. Right. And I was like, okay, sure. What's up, man? How you doing? He's like, I'm your grandfather. I was like, man, you know, I don't have a grandfather. Like I, I never seen him. Like, what are you talking about? And then he was just like pulling out newspaper articles, what? all kinds of family secrets that only he would know. And so I was like, wow, I met my grandfather as a first year for the first time. Wow. You know? so, I belonged at UVA. Absolutely. So when somebody challenged me, no, my grandparents paved the path and they made it so that we could go there. So I was not about to let somebody tell me I didn't belong here and I only got in because I'm black. No, I got in because I'm qualified. Right. I'm not going to prove it to you, but I'm going to prove it to myself. I'm going to prove it for my grandfather. I'm going to prove it for my grandma. I'm going to prove it for my mom. I'm going to prove it for my dad. So you can talk all that stuff. It's not going to change yeah. who I am and why I'm here. I am here and this is my space. Yeah. Um, and- so what NOMAS did for me was it allowed us that opportunity to not just fill it within our circle, but to go out and be our own champions. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like we celebrate we. So I don't need you to celebrate me. I'm not asking for your acceptance. I'm not asking for your permission. I'm saying I am here and I am proud to be here and I yeah. deserve to be here. I earned it to be here. If you don't like it, that's your your problem. Exactly, exactly. And that was something that was so huge at UVA to even learn how to get through that. And I remember the number of particularly white students because I lived in old dorms. And so when yeah, I was in your old yeah, dorms, yep, it's a old dorms because there were a number of legacy students. Old dorms tended mm-hmm. to skew to be wider than new dorms, as you know. And so yep. I remember students being like, "Oh, you only got in because you're black," and it's like, "Yep." If that were the case, why haven't I failed out yet? It's right. like still here, still doing better than you in that class. And then it was also a really interesting, like mental gymnastics that some of the white students in old dorms were doing. And because some of them were legacy students and they were only admitted probably because their parents wrote a big old check, big old donation. Right. They weren't doing good in yep. school. They were struggling. It's, so it's one of those things where it's like this idea mm-hmm. of, oh, you're black and you don't belong. But that's not the case. And it's just because you're white doesn't mean you do belong just because your family had money to pay to get you here. So it was definitely um, a lot of that negotiation happening. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, my first week, uh, I got called a nigger. My mm. very first week. Not nigger, nigger. First mm. week. And I was like, here I am, you know, liberal university. Right. And I was like, nope, you're yeah. still a nigger. Yep, and, yep. And I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. I remember there, like the FBI had to get called to UVA for a hate crime. Remember for Daisy Lundy? Yeah, with Daisy Lundy. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. even when uh, my fourth year, when Phil lived on the lawn, there were different things written on his door. Like, it's just the the caucasity of it all was just very frustrating. Just- and every UVA student is qualified to be there. Right. But a lot of people don't want you to be there. Mm-hmm. And they're going to try to make you quit. And you quit is when they and right, exactly. We were not about letting win. And not at all. taught me that. Yeah. We're going to create a safe space. So, yeah, my that was my experience at, at UVA. Then I graduated, worked for two years at Gant Huberman with Harvey Gant, mm-hmm. who was the first Black student at Clemson's university. And he oh, studied architecture. And he ran for a Senate race. And he's very popular in North Carolina as mm-hmm. one of a trailblazer for uh, African-American professionals and, and, and specifically architecture. So I got to work under a civil rights era person and learned, uh, I learned a lot from Harvey Yant and I, I appreciate that experience. And then I went back to UNC Charlotte for my fifth year so I can get uh, a qualified or the credentials to sit for the AREs, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. passed all the AREs. My brother also passed them all. But one cool fact is uh, we both passed them all on our first attempt. What? That's Never amazing. Listen, so, I failed three, so I am super impressed with all of, with both of y'all. <laughs> but how many architects fail ARES? Like I would say ninety percent of them. None, none, because you passed them all. <laughs> all right, you got me. You got me. Okay. Yeah, there you go. You didn't fail. You passed them, Nikita. You didn't fail. Uh-uh. Right. It's just, you just passed it at a later time. You that's true. Them. Same way yeah. it's like a med student or doctors who got C's are still doctors. <laughs> doctors. Still doctors. How many lawyers failed the bar? None. Yeah. Because they're lawyers, they passed it. You, right. you passed it. And right. Eventually, you got there. License, I thought it meant something. So I thought the world was going to open up to me when I got my license. I thought everybody was, was like, throw a party. Same. Nope. It was nope. so anticlimactic. It was like, yeah. Yep. Right? Exactly. I was like, <laughs> and, okay, yes, I'm licensed. Okay, and? Oh, okay, <laughs> right? Right. But not only that, but sometimes that um, energy, that, that qualified energy mm-hmm. still pops up. So I could be at a bar and some random no Joe guy comes over mm-hmm. and he starts talking and we're like, hey, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm an architect. Oh, I wanted to go into architecture school, but blah, 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 blah. It's always, I wanted to be an architect. Right. And then they'll ask a random question like, hey, do you know the, who designed this one building right. in Texas? Right. Oh, right. and I'm like, no. And they're like, are you sure you're an architect? You're not qualified to be an architect. Right. So I still get challenged. Yeah. Know? So even though. Imagine earning continuing education credits while doing exactly what you're doing right now. Well, you can. Gable Media has revolutionized the way you earn your continuing education credits with a groundbreaking approach. Forget running around town and scouring the internet for credit-worthy courses. Fulfill your CE requirements effortlessly by listening to engaging podcasts just like the one you're listening to now. Our podcasts are designed to educate, entertain, and inspire all in a user-friendly environment. But wait, there's more. Architects, Gable Media is also approved as an AIA continuing education services provider. Upon completion, we handle everything 
from reporting your hours directly to the AIA to storing your certificates in your personal Gable Media profile for your self-reporting needs. So follow the link in the show notes and start earning your credits in the most innovative and entertaining way possible with Gable Media. Want to learn more about the unknown ladies of architecture? Then I recommend you listen to She Builds Podcast, where we tell the stories of remarkable women who have shaped the design and construction industries. Hi, I'm Jessica. I'm Nurjiti. And I'm Lizzie. After we graduated from Syracuse University School of Architecture, we set out to learn and share the untold stories of women that traditional school curriculum left out. One day, there's an announcement on campus that women had been seen wearing, quote, inappropriate clothing. Gasp. What the heck does that mean? Yeah, so it turns out that Ruth and her fellow classmates were these women. They had field classes where they're doing welding, forging, and foundry work. And obviously they have to wear jeans to those classes instead of like dresses or whatever else. While Gertie was in school, she wasn't just going to classes, trying to stay alive like some of us. I know that was me in school, just taking it day by day, but not Gertie. She became the president of Evigol, an honorary association of Cornell women architects. Of course she did. These are stories not taught in schools. Women who've molded the world of architecture, construction, and development for over a century. From Jane Jacobs to Ray Eames, She Builds Podcast explores the legacies of trailblazers. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Let's fill the gaps in history together. All you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and subscribe and be part of a movement to expand industry narratives. getting a license it felt anticlimactic it was still super important because it did Mm -hmm. change the level of respect that I got particularly from white males in the field Mm -hmm. because I can't Mm -hmm. tell you the number of times even after I was licensed I'd be like oh I'm an architect oh you can't call yourself an architect if you're not licensed I'm a wearer that's why I called myself an architect because I am licensed it was but there's still you're right like that credential challenging Mm -hmm. well prove it are you sure you're supposed to be in this space are you sure that you actually know what you're talking about Mm -hmm. you can't really be an architect like you're not a real architect right now when it happens to me because it still happens every now and then it happens right I just chuckle and I'm like oh you don't know who I am that's cute okay <laughs> like it's <laughs> but some of our experience that we went through in college actually prepared us for the real world yeah absolutely the real world is going to treat you like those students treated us mm-hmm. and if, at least we got to learn in a safe environment to be strong and be who we are so that when the awkward moment came, we knew how to respond, defend ourselves professionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on a job site meeting and I was the only black person in the room on the OAC meetings all the time. At that time I was performing as an owner's rep. Mm-hmm. So I was approving pay apps, all that stuff. Right. And the contractor was pissed off because I wouldn't approve a pay app because he didn't provide the backup that I required mm-hmm. before I could buy his work. And uh, he's pissed. And he right. told everybody that back in his day, I would find the biggest tree and hang people like you. And I was wow. like, okay, thank you. Still not approving your pay app. Got fired the next day because he was working for me. Right. Like, you're not going to talk to me that way. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to be professional. I'm not going to cuss you out. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to have you removed from your position. Right. Uh, you have a great day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and as that architect, that license, we we have a legal authority. Right. You know, it is by law. 
you cannot build most buildings without an architect's approval by law. So if you don't listen to our, it's not saying that we have an ego or be arrogant. No, it's, it's you respect my authority. <laughs> right. Because also it's like that commitment and that we are licensed to protect health, safety, and welfare of the general public. First and foremost. So it's First and foremost. incredibly important that we're at the table, that we're using our voice, that we're not getting bullied. And if we are, that we're responding professionally like you did. Because that's the other thing. We don't have the luxury to get emotional. Mm-hmm. Even as like a black woman, like it's, they're waiting for an angry black man. Wait, same. Angry black man. Yep. yep, exactly. Angry black woman. Oh, sorry. She's intimidating or she's a bitch or I don't want to work with her. She's difficult. Mm-hmm. And like, it's all of the stereotypes that definitely come from profession, from being a person of color, a woman in the profession. And so mm-hmm. having to be extra patient, extra kind, extra thoughtful, all of the tap dancing to some extent that has to happen mm-hmm. um, just to get things done. It's exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. It is. Mm-hmm. And um, that's part of why I got reinvolved with NOMA mm-hmm. on the professional side. As a student, I understand it and appreciate it. But as a professional side, like we have to create a, a place for people like us. Yeah. And I give back to the next generation by mentoring. Right now, I mentor about, I average about 13, 15 mentees. Awesome. That range from awesome. recent grads, current students, people uh, in the profession who just need a voice to talk mm-hmm. to, because it is tough navigating that profession as people of color. And I'm sure it's even that much tougher as a woman of color. Mm-hmm. That is so many eggshells and light landfills that we walk on that we are juggling a lot mentally. And that's before we even get to the office. That's before a pen meets the paper. So I got. A, I was texting one of my mentees last night, and she was saying she's struggling with imposter syndrome mm-hmm. because everybody keeps telling her she's a fraud, this, and she's constantly getting beat down. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in our profession, you have to practice for a good 10, 15 years before it clicks. Like, I'm still learning new things every day. Yeah, and, and we will for life. Day. Like, Yeah. And we will. And that's the beauty of architecture. Like, It's right. always a learning process. You never stop learning something new. Right. And the architect who says he knows it all, that's the one you better stay away from. Yeah. Critical <laughs> mistake. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let that be your red flag. So she was texting me. Like, hey, I need advice because I'm I'm about to quit the profession because I'm just tired of the gauntlet. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's tough. And especially as a person of color where you're going to get underpaid, that just comes with the territory. You're not going to get the best assignments. You're going to get the cliff jobs or or you're going to get the jobs where, hey, we got this job four hours away. We need you to go to the meet. And you're like, we got, you know, 50 projects within a mile, a 60 mile radius. Like, why am I going way over here? And you get to the meet and you're just like... Oh, it's because there's a black chairman on the board and right. you're trying to get this job because of black. I always recommend this to my mentees. Mm-hmm. Don't marry your first firm. You're out here to get experience. This is not a relationship. This is business opportunities. Good so advice. stay at a place in your, 20, in your 20s. Never stay at a place longer than two years. Never. Hmm. Okay. Because two years here, now you probably became a somewhat, not an expert, but knowledgeable of like how to do K-12 schools. So now I'm knowledgeable of that. So now I'm going to go design hospitals for two years. Now I'm knowledgeable about that. You know what? I think I want to do residential. Go do some residential for a couple of years. And then by the time you're in your thirties, mid thirties, and you're sitting for your exams and your license, now is when you can make that move of what do you like to do? Because every, no, you don't really know if you like working on projects until you get into them. 
Right. The only way to get into them is to get into them. So right. my recommendation for my mentees is be super aggressive with your career path. Get that experience. Because guess what? If you were that star architect at that place and you left and you went away for four years, they will hire you back. So every yeah. place I've left has asked me to come back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and particularly if you leave without burning the bridges. And so there's a way oh, to actually- never burn the bridge. Exactly. Because architecture mm-hmm. is way too small of a community. Way too small. Way too mm-hmm. small. Like you're going to bump everybody into the person. Everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, be kind. <laughs> yes, <laughs> be kind because it'll you know, come that's back to you. Leave in the middle of a deadline, now, you get your job done. You don't leave at the worst possible moment. But I'm just saying to be um, very aggressive when you're g- gaining that career experience. Yeah, and um, I, I think that's interesting advice. And when I'm talking to some of the students, I remind them that they have to decide what they want because I think also, particularly as women, particularly as people of color, I find that we tend to wait to be given something only in the sense where I have to prove myself and then someone will see that I'm worthy and then they'll start giving me different assignments that I want, Mm -hmm. even though I'm Mm -hmm. not articulating what I want, but they're going to read my mind because I'm so great at what I'm doing and all these merit, whatever, it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like we- It is bullshit. Yeah. We're scared and we're like, I just hope they give me the table scraps. Right. And it's like, no, ask for what you want. People can't read Mm -hmm. your mind. They don't know what your passions are. And people aren't going to be able to figure out what you want based on the quality of work that you're doing. So even um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when I was going through exams, oh, wait, I need more CA time. I need more construction documents time. You have to be your own advocate because people can't read your mind. And what NOAA does for us is it gives us the support system Mm -hmm. to believe in ourselves. Yes. and that's what I love about that organization, mm-hmm. uh, because as an architect, um, I was talking to my wife today about it. Every day I have to defend myself, defend my decisions, because every time you draw a line on a piece of paper, it means something. Right. You better know what it means before you draw it. And you have to defend that. You're not going to be the perfect architect. We, we have this in our contract where no drawings are perfect. You know, no. feel verified, yeah. blah, 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 because it's not perfect. And as, when you understand that. Mm-hmm. that perfection isn't the goal, then you are able to handle that criticism a little bit better. And what NOMA does, it provides the support for when the world pushes back, we catch each other yeah. you know, and we hold strong. Yeah. And like the network of NOMA and even like the relationships are one of the things I appreciate, particularly because in many cases, I've been the only architect of color in a space. And so being around a number of other architects of color, being able to bounce ideas off of them, sounding boards like, oh, you asked for that. Oh, I could ask for that. You see what's possible Mm -hmm. when you see people who are like even five to 10 years ahead of you, who look like you, like more of a blueprint Mm -hmm. of what is possible, what's reasonable, Mm -hmm. as opposed to feeling like, oh, I I can't ask for that. Or my company wouldn't do that. Or companies don't do this. It's, Mm -hmm. you get so much more of a spectrum from the NOMA community. And it is really one of the things that I enjoy about going to conferences, meeting architects from around the country, and just seeing how things are done differently in different areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know that's how our profession is. It's dominated by white men. Yes. It's dominated. And now white women are becoming the majority eventually. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're going to continue to get marginalized unless we carve out our space. So on my architectural journey, I didn't go full-time with the family business until about three, four years ago. Okay. And I hit a point in my career where I was one of the highest performers and not getting compensated appropriately. So I negotiated some things with the company. And basically it was like, look around. 
that ain't happening here. You're, you're never going to be that here. Got you. And we had our third kid and two kids is easy. You know, one-on-one man-to-man defense. You can do <laughs> But when that third one comes, whoo, you got to <laughs> set it up. Because like you only got two bodies and you got three kids. And it was tough working 40 hours a week away from the home, 50 hours a week. Because mm-hmm. we're commuting hour one way, hour back. Right. I only see my kids 30 minutes a day. And I, I hit a point where I was like, the, the pay was fine. The projects were great. I was managing about the average $200 million a year. So I was getting that exposure, but my family was hurting. Gotcha. You know? And it started to hurt me inside that here I am fighting for this profession that is not fighting for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, I put in my two weeks notice, called my dad and said, all right, I'm ready to go full time. I was always part time, side jobs here and there, you know, moonlighting this, moonlighting right. that. But it wasn't like a full commitment. And right. you know, you can't really half ass architecture. You you can't do side jobs. Like I, I I give advice to my up and comers and they're like, Oh, I got this great opportunity. Somebody wants me to do a side job. And I say, No, don't do it. Yep, it's gonna burn you out. It really well, yeah. does. You know, when you go home, you need to cut that architecture switch off and watch Netflix for an hour or two. You know? <laughs> get some, and, get another hobby, find another release, do something. <laughs> side job is not a ho- hobby. Don't do it. Yeah, because burnout is real. One of my friends, he has this construction company, and he just had just went out, and he encouraged me now. Mm-hmm. And that first week, I didn't have one job. And my wife was like, I believe in you. You right. believe in you. Everybody believes you is going to make this happen. But that second week, I had three jobs because I was putting in the work and the full-time commitment to land them and make this thing happen. So now I have my own company. I make twice as much and mm-hmm. work half as much. Nice. So it's, it's like, And I'm here every morning when my kids are on the bus. Mm-hmm. I'm here when they get off the bus. I have that flexibility. When it's time to work, I create, knock it out. But that's why I did it for my family. Mm-hmm. But also as a black architect, I can't tell you how many projects we've gotten because a small business can't afford the high-end architect. Mm-hmm. So our company business model, we strip out a lot of the design stuff. So a lot of the stuff they tell you in architecture school, we, we leave it in architecture school. <laughs> and we're more of the, the, the business of architecture, not necessarily the practice of it, if that makes sense. Okay. And there, there's a small niche of business owners, uh, people who want to do like a small addition to their house. Mm-hmm. They can't afford a $50,000 architect. Right. Hell, their, their whole budget is $50,000. Right. We can make the same work because we have so much um, project experience over 30 years. We, we can get to the answer faster mm-hmm. because those clients aren't looking for design answers. They're looking for a permit set. And right. Constructability. Right. Constructability. That's it. And right. Meet people, build it. And it's on budget, on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the majority of our projects are serving the underserved community, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So when we can see one-on-one how we can transform somebody's life through architecture, most of our work, we're not going to get an award for it. But when that seafood restaurant opens up and he can feed the hood because we help them get a building permit. Right. That's when we see the value. When that church just built a 300-person sanctuary, Mm-hmm. And we make it happen. We're not in the profession to get rich or awards or accolades. Now, we do get those nice projects one or two a year. I'm not going to lie. We, we still get the pretty ones every day. Right, right. But our business model more is about serving the underserved community. So, for instance, um, I walked 11 sites yesterday. We're building these affordable duplexes in this at-risk neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the neighbors came out and was asking us what we're doing. 
he's an army vet. He has accessibility issues. So you know, we out here working with these people one-to-one and transforming their lives by providing them habitable, nice living spaces. Yeah. You know, there's something to be said about that. And how we get the project was um, our fee is almost nothing on those projects. But with the volume, we can, we still turn profit. Now, we don't do it for free. But we don't use that to make ourselves rich. Like we don't handicap the project because of an architectural fee. Yeah. We don't get 20% on our projects. We don't even get 10%. We're lucky to get five. Most of most of them are like two and three percent. Thanks. And we're okay with it. You know. So you guys uh, yeah, processes we, streamlined and all that good stuff to still stay profitable. All right. Correct. So like to make that deal work, there's eleven sites. Uh they're all duplexes. So you come up with one design and right. copy paste, copy paste, copy paste. Yeah. Right? And that's how you make your profit. Yeah. So when we think about, you know, I have two daughters who are interested in architecture mm-hmm. and we took them to a, a NOMA exhibition. It's called the Say Loud. Oh, yeah. This was in North Carolina and we had over 100 or so designers all in this art gallery. Mm-hmm. And to see their faces of the diverse people, the diverse colors, you know, mm-hmm. men, women, all the kinds of range of projects and have my kids just walk through that space and say, yes, this could be, you know. So That's awesome. See what we do. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I love that exhibit. I'm part of the one for the Say Loud Maryland. And I'm so grateful that Pascal started that whole, the whole recognition program and all that, because that has definitely changed the way that people see Black architects in the profession and building on so much of the Noma legacy and all that. That's super dope. I'm glad to know that you're in the one in North Carolina. That's fantastic. <laughs> like we get to see we. Yeah. In a profession that's dominated by white males. Yeah. We don't get the credit we deserve. So we're going to carve a space where we credit ourselves. And that's okay. Exactly. I I mean, architecture, it's a lovely profession. It's constantly changing every day. And we have to constantly challenge ourselves every day. And as a Black architect, where we represent less than 1%, like you can equate that to how many Black presidents we've had. Mm-hmm. On the same ratio, that's how many Black architects there are. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's a less percentage of Black female architects. Yep. So the route that I took in architecture is not the same that my peers did. And, and I don't recommend this for everybody or anybody, but I felt that there was a need that I needed to serve the Black community. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that was under my family's business umbrella. Mm-hmm. You know, we landed a huge project a couple months ago, and this is church, international church. They have a ton of money, and the, the pastor said they were sitting on the money until they found a Black architect. Oh, wow. And he said, four years to find a Black architect. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so when we called him, like, through our network, somebody said, hey, call this church. They're looking for you. And we called him, and he said, you're hired. We didn't even tell him the numbers, <laughs> nothing. He said, you're hired. I've been right. looking for you guys for four years. Wow. And if we don't intentionally go out and say, I am here and I'm black and I am proud. We have to be here to serve those people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's how I see myself and my family using our talents to give back to our community. We talked about navigating the world as a black professional. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, quote unquote, educated black professional we do face that stereotype. You, you too white for black people. You, you too black for white people. So mm-hmm. You sit in this land and everybody says, well, you're not really giving back to your community. Right. You donate a million dollars and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So then not only that, our blackness gets questioned. And then in a profession, 
where we get calls from firms that want to team up with us only on black projects. Right. So it's like your blackness is for sale. Yeah. And it's no, it's not. My blackness is not for sale. Mm-hmm. Uh, my blackness should not be questioned just right. because I'm a black professional. Uh, my mere existence is me giving back. 100%. You know? So I don't have to prove it to anybody. Right. I'm exactly. Here. Exactly. So, I exist. <laughs> You're welcome. Exist. Like <laughs> that is enough. Yeah. You know, and if you choose to do more than that, then yes, do more. But if you don't choose to do more than that, your existence is right. enough. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Oh, and that's so real. You know, coming full, full circle. Mm-hmm. So there's this museum project that we did in Lynchburg, the Ann Spencer Museum. They, were, they didn't have the budget for it. So we did a pro bono because it was the right thing to do. And we used the design to raise money. Mm-hmm. Well, UVA caught wind of it and they created a whole class out of it. What? And then they generated money from the class. Y'all sitting on a review and these students knew more about my project than I did. <laughs> so here my, my drawings, my project, and the kids are just like, no, it needs to be this. And That's like, amazing. Wow. So it, it can all, a small gesture, you can always do the right thing at the right time. But you just never know where that journey in architecture is going to go. I like that about architecture. I like being able to drive through the neighborhood and say that community center that we built kept 15 kids on the right path. Mm-hmm. You know, that family life center at the church provided a, a safe space for the community. Mm-hmm. Just all these stories that come yeah. with our practice. Yeah. It's not just designing buildings. Yeah. It's designing spaces. It's influencing lives. It's, it's the connectivity of all of it. Yes, absolutely. And I I, think, yeah. And I love the fact that particularly in your practice where you're really embracing the fact that architecture is for people. The number of times I was blown away by how many architecture colleagues I had in school who were designing buildings to be beautiful artifacts that weren't Mm -hmm. for people to interact with. It's like the potentially inappropriate. Exactly. And it's like <laughs> architects or rather architectural students who were like architecture doesn't have any social implications. What are you talking about? The built environment is full of social implications and it impacts people's lives in real time. Design yep. is not neutral. What are you talking about? So it's I love the fact that you are bringing up the people side and bring, making sure to and, talk about the people. And as a firm, will we recognize that? Uh, will we stop pretending to be something we weren't? Mm-hmm. Will we recognize to be the people's architect? Mm-hmm. That's when things shifted for us as a business. Nice. Um, from the company side, we say, you know what? We're, we're not going to be the littles, the HOKs, the mm-hmm. Perkins and Wills. No, we, we can't compete against that guy. So let's stop pretending that we can. Right. Focus on who we are and, and let's serve the people. Yeah, I and, love that. And we're the people's architect. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for listening. Links to amazing resources can be found in the episode's show notes. Special thanks to Sarah Gilberg for allowing me to use snippets of her song Fireflies from her debut album, Other People's Secrets, which, by the way, is available wherever music is sold. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the show. And now that Tangible Remnants is part of the Gable Media Network, you can listen and subscribe to all network partner content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Until next time. I saw the first fireflies of summer And right then I thought of you Oh, I 
I could see us catching them and setting them free. Honey, that's what you do. That's what you do to me. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.